Have you all ever messed up, like, big time? Like, really, really, really messed up. But then, even worse, everybody finds out about how bad you just messed up. That's like the worst ever. Um, that's never happened to me though. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that majorly happened to me. Um, and I'm not gonna tell you when because it just makes it really embarrassing. Um, but uh, back in the day, I messed up and I had a secret boyfriend. Yeah, I did that. Um, I would see I wasn't allowed to date at the time, um, but I, I did anyway. You guys, you guys know how how that is. Um, and so I had the secret boyfriend. He was a fairly long-term boyfriend. My parents didn't know about him. I wasn't really allowed to date. And then, at one moment of my life, they found out about it. And you guys, it was really tragic. I'm gonna tell you what happened and it's really embarrassing, okay? So I was babysitting one night and it was super, super late and I was coming home and everything was fine, sunshine and rainbows. And then I opened the door to my house and I stepped in and it was like the hair on the back of my neck began to stand up. I was like a wild animal. I just felt like something was off in the room. I don't know if you guys have ever felt that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, something's wrong. So I began to walk into the room and I see my dad standing there. <sighs> oh my gosh, it was so scary. And he looks at me, and I was like, hey dad, what's up, everything's good, yeah, I thought you'd be in bed. And he looks at me and he goes, Madeline, let me see your phone. Yeah, yeah. And at that moment, I had thought of every single spy movie that I had ever watched where they like swallow the cyanide pill. I was like trying to find my cyanide pill. I was trying to figure out if I could swallow the phone itself to like get rid of the evidence and I couldn't. And so I just handed it to him because you know, he pays for it. It's kind of his property. And then I was like, well, you're never going to guess the passcode. He did. It was my birthday. Um, and so he opens it up. He starts looking through the texts to my secret boyfriend and he quickly realizes that um, I did indeed have a secret boyfriend. They weren't steamy texts, okay? Don't, don't go there in your mind. But uh, they were obvious that we were in a relationship. And come to find out, the ultimate betrayal of it all was that my sister was the one that told on me. I know, that was totally against sister code. I still have not forgiven her. No, I'm just kidding. But she totally told on me. I totally got caught red-handed. And it was one of the most embarrassing moments in my life because I don't like to mess up. I don't like people to know that sometimes I do bad things. And I felt so guilty because I had been lying to my parents, but also I didn't get to date my secret boyfriend anymore. And that really sucked too. But then I went to school and I didn't have very good friends at the time. So all everyone found out and it was really embarrassing. And then I came here to church and my dad and JL are BFFs and so she knew and that was really embarrassing and then everyone else kind of found out and I felt like I had a scarlet letter on my chest at all times. I just felt very, very bad. But sometimes you mess up and it super sucks, but it really sucks when everybody finds out about it, when somehow everyone knows exactly what is going on in your world. And so I think all of us can relate to a certain extent. Maybe you didn't have a secret boyfriend, or maybe you did. If you did, come talk to me. No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to. Uh, but we all have a chapter in our books that we don't necessarily want to be read aloud because messing up is so humiliating, but it's even worse when it happens publicly and when there's people there who know about it. And there's a woman in the Bible who can absolutely relate to this if you've ever messed up, if people ever find out about it 
it. You probably have heard her story before. It's one of my favorites in the Bible. And so I'm going to go ahead and read the story of what happens. And then I'm going to go ahead and talk a little bit about what the story is and what it means to us and when we mess up. And so it talks about her story in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him, but Jesus stopped, stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And this is probably a story that if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard it before. And it's one of my favorite stories. I love when he says, go and so no, sin no more. I love when he shoves it in the people's face by saying, let one of you who have never sinned cast the first stone. It's such a satisfying story. But I think that there are a few questions that come up as we're reading this scripture of certain things where you're like, I don't actually really know why that's in there. And I don't really kind of know what some of this stuff means. And I wanted to break this story a little bit down because I think that there are some hidden messages, some hidden jewels within some of these questions that we might have that the Lord wants to speak to us tonight. And so the first question that I had when I read this story the first couple of times is why are there so many people around? Why is there a crowd that is there to witness the stoning of this poor woman? Which if you don't know what a stoning is, that literally means that they throw heavy rocks at her until she dies. So it's super, super sad, super, super brutal. And so why are there so many people around to witness what could potentially be this woman's stoning? Well, if we look at the context of this story in the chapter right before this in John chapter seven, it talks about how right before this, the feast of tabernacles or the festival of tabernacles is happening in Jerusalem. And so what this means basically is that everybody was coming to Jerusalem for this festival. So I want you to imagine like Christmas Eve here at the church pre-COVID, you know how everybody comes, all your family, everybody comes there for the event. That was what was happening in Jerusalem. Every single Jew forever came to this festival, came to Jerusalem in order to celebrate. So there were people everywhere. And this story in John chapter eight takes place on the day after this festival when many people are still there. Then the next question that popped up into my mind is, okay, why are these people, these religious leaders or these, these Pharisees trying to trap Jesus? What would be their play there? What would be their motive for wanting to trap him? And again, if you look at John chapter seven, it reveals why. In this story, right before this one, it says that while all of these people were gathered in Jerusalem for this festival, all of the religious leaders were doing their teachings and their sermons, and they were speaking to all of these people that had come far and wide. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, Jesus stands up. 
And he completely hijacks the sermon and begins to speak about whatever he wants to talk about. So that in and of itself is kind of a faux pas. You don't really interrupt. You don't really just hijack a sermon from someone. If uh, Sean did that to me right now, I'd probably punch him in the face, right? You just don't do that, okay? So that's what happens is he kind of hijacks the sermon. And then on top of that, Jesus not only hijacks it, but then he begins to say some pretty controversial and revolutionary things that had never really been said before. He begins to talk about how he is the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, we may be thinking, okay, well, why is that a big deal? We talk about in here all the time how Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But back then, it was a huge deal that a man would stand up and say these things because if he didn't mean them or if it wasn't true— that guy would be a serious problem. But of course, Jesus didn't mean them. And so we have to remember that this is happening before the New Testament is written. The New Testament is in the process of happening. So all these people have, these Jews have, is their Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it did predict that the Son of God was coming, that the Messiah was on his way, but they didn't know when. And so here's Jesus standing in front of all of these people. Everyone is gathered there, and he's very publicly announcing, hey, that guy that all of those prophecies about, that all of those scriptures are about, that son of God, that's me. I am the Messiah, and I am the one who is going to save all of you. And so we see Jesus doing this very, very brave thing, very courageous thing that no one had done up until this point. And so this sets the stage for the following day when now there's all of this animosity between Jesus and these Pharisees and these religious leaders. But what I want to look at for a second is Jesus himself and his actions in this moment. Imagine being in this position where there are all of these people that are around you that believe in your father, and now you have to come out and tell them that you are the son of God. Imagine the doubt that you would face. Imagine the pushback. Imagine the people that would say to you, prove it. Prove that you are who you say you are. And Jesus in this moment is completely courageous in declaring who he was. And I think that many times the enemy doesn't want us to picture our Jesus this way. At least for me, he always wanted me kind of as a way to come against Jesus to picture him as like this kind of cookie cutter guy, right? This goody goody who's kind of perfect and he's kind of the stick in the mud. I think that's the Jesus that the devil wants each and every one of us to imagine. But what you need to know right now is that this is not at all who Jesus was. Jesus was a revolutionary and he was outspoken when it came to declaring what he believed in. And he was sent to this world to flip it from upside down to right side up again. He refused to be silenced by those who didn't believe in him or those that were older than him or more qualified. He didn't let the fact that he was a carpenter's son or that he was young hold him back. He was fearless and he stood up for the overlooked and the outcasts. None of Jesus' teachings during this time fit into the status quo or into what everyone else was saying, but instead he challenged all of it. And I think that we need to know that, yes, we follow the merciful God who did die on the cross for us. We do follow the God that is the lamb, the perfect sacrifice, but he's also the lion. 
Jesus is the lion and the lamb. He's not just this cookie cutter Jesus, but he is strong and he is brave. And he is so, so courageous in this moment as he's standing up in front of these people declaring who he is. And so many people in this moment, they decided that they would begin to uh, leave the rest of their lives, that they would start to follow Jesus. But he is still facing a ton of adversity, a ton of these people, these religious leaders or these Pharisees that are calling Jesus out saying that he is a liar and a fake. They are questioning his identity and his character, and they are relentless during this time in their defiance of him. See, Jesus faced so much more adversity than just dying on the cross. I think that we look at Jesus and we think that his life was easy until he gets there and then he dies this brutal death, but we need to know that Jesus fought every single day against people who did not believe in him, against people who spoke against him, against the very people who were claiming to love his father, he is now fighting against. Jesus faced so much adversity. And these people that are trying to come against him are the same ones that end up dragging this woman in this story to Jesus in order to stone her. Now, I want us to imagine and put ourselves into this woman's shoes for a second. It wasn't like they had heard this rumor about her that she was sleeping around, and then they decided to bring her up in front of Jesus in this public moment. It says that she was caught in the act. And so these religious leaders and they, these Pharisees, they found this woman as she is doing this thing, and they drag her from that point, and they bring her to the most public celebration in all of the year. This is the time where everyone is there, her friends, her family, people that she never even met before, and these ruthless people bring her out in front of everyone and accuse her of being an adulterer. And in this moment, these religious leaders, they're claiming to care about the law. They're claiming to say, okay, well, she's done something bad. She needs to get something for it. She deserves something for the things that she has done. But the verse says that in reality, that wasn't really their intention at all. These religious leaders weren't trying to get justice for the law. They weren't trying to do that. But instead, they were trying to trap Jesus into doing something that could potentially make him lose influence. And it says in the Old Testament, this is the law that this woman broke in Leviticus 20.10. It says, if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. So in this very, very public moment, or moment where this woman is sitting before him, Jesus is surrounded by people that he is trying to get to follow him, that he is trying to teach who he is and what he's come to do. And now he's facing these Pharisees, these religious leaders that are trying to trap him by saying, okay, in this moment, you can do one of two things with this woman. One, you can choose to uphold the law and publicly stone her in front of everybody. Or two, you can choose to say that her sin doesn't deserve consequences, therefore defying the law. And so Jesus in this moment is supposed to be trapped to make one of these two decisions that could force him to lose influence, but we know that Jesus is much smarter and much more capable than these men, and he doesn't do either of these things at all. He doesn't get caught in the trap of what these men are trying to do. And so we see him to handle this situation with such grace and with such righteous strength. 
So rather than picking up the stone and throwing it at the woman or screaming at the men for their cruelty or turning their back on the sin and acting like it didn't even exist, he stoops down and he writes in the sand. And one of the questions that I'm asking as I'm reading this scripture is what is he writing? What is he writing in the sand? What could possibly so, be so important? Is it a symbol of some sort? What is he possibly writing? And many scholars believe that he was actually writing out Leviticus 20.10, that same law that the Pharisees were trying to accuse this woman of breaking. Now, this is brilliant because when he's writing this into the sand, as scholars believe, he's doing two things. One, he's showing these Pharisees and these naysayers that Jesus very much knows the law, that he is the law, that he hasn't memorized, and he knows that this woman is breaking the law. And two, Jesus is saying, you're not actually here for the law. You don't actually care because if you look back at Leviticus 20.10, it says both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. So where's the man? Why has just the woman been brought in front of all these people? Why is just she being the one that is being accused? It shows that these Pharisees, they didn't care at all about what the law said. In that moment, all they wanted to do was trap Jesus. So when he writes in the sand, it's this power move of, I am the God, I am the son of God, I know the law, and I know that you care nothing about it. And the next is another power move where he says the thing that we all love, that he says, let the first, or let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he writes one final thing in the sand before the men leave. And many scholars believe that it was Jeremiah 17, 13. It says, oh Lord, the hope of Israel, all who turn away from you will be disgraced. They will be buried in the dust of the earth for they have abandoned the Lord the fountain of living water. But why would Jesus write this verse? Why would he say this to these Pharisees, to these naysayers? Well, if we put the verse back up there for a second, basically what he is saying with just this one verse is, you are a disgrace. You are turning your back away. You are trying to trap the Lord, the fountain of living water. And because of this, you will be buried in the dust of the earth. So now Jesus is using his own word in order to defend this woman. And with just a few words and a few plays, he effectively turns the wrath of those, moment, or of those men away from the woman and onto himself. And now we know why they hated Jesus so much, why they saw him as such a threat. But now we know why, how much we love Jesus because of these things that he did. So many of us are probably in this moment sighing for relief at this point in the story for this woman, right? The bad men have left. She's there alone with Jesus. We know that he's not going to hurt her. But I believe that this, in fact, was the scariest moment of the day for that woman. It wasn't when she was caught and dragged out of bed. It wasn't when she was put in front of the, in, every, in this position and being accused of doing this thing and potentially getting stoned. But I think right now, in this moment, she is the most scared because if there is one person who was sinless and who could throw that stone, it would be Jesus. But we know that wasn't his heart. And Jesus let her go with the beautiful words of go and sin no more. So when I finish this story, I think, oh, I love that. 
I love how he handles that. I love how brilliantly he makes those men completely regret what they've done, how he turns their judgment away from the woman and back onto the men. But then I wonder, well, what about her? Her sin is still very much real. It still has to be paid somehow. Is Jesus just acting like it never happened? Is he just turning his back on it and forgetting it completely? How can Jesus just allow this woman to leave without any sense of retribution? Well, I believe that Jesus was able to let her go in that moment because he knew that one day soon he was going to be able to hang on that cross for her and for that exact sin. He knew that the payment for that sin wasn't going to be paid right there, but that it was coming very soon. We need to know that Jesus didn't just forget about it. He didn't just act as if it didn't happen because Jesus takes sin so seriously. Because he sees it as more than just messing up. He sees it as more than us just falling short. Sin is so much more of that. And a scholar describes sin in this way. He says, sin is the missing of the target, a wandering from the path, the straying from the fold. Sin is a hard heart and a stiff neck. Sin is blindness and deafness. It is both the overstepping of the line and the failure to reach it, both transgression and shortcoming. Sin is never normal. Sin is the disruption of created harmony and resistance to divine restoration of that harmony. So when we look at sin as being more than just messing up or falling short, that it is not meeting the line, but also overstepping the line, that it's this disruption of this created harmony, that it is straying from the fold, we begin to understand why God takes it so seriously. And we need to, we need to know that he doesn't hate sin because we're breaking a rule. God hates sin because it breaks us. We say over and over and over again, it weakens us, it lowers us, it diminishes us, it brings us into shame and lures us into hiding and it also separates us away from him. So when he has this moment of mercy for this woman, it's not him saying your sin doesn't matter. It's him saying your sin matters so much that I'm gonna die on the cross for it. I think that sometimes we try to justify our sins by thinking, well, Sin isn't that big of a deal because I know that God is just going to inevitably forgive me for it. I know that when I mess up, I can just ask God for his forgiveness and then everything's fine again. But guys, we can't use the cross as a get out of jail free card every single time. We can't sin with the mentality that it's no big deal because Jesus is just going to forgive us anyway. Yes, this is true. He will always forgive us. His grace is always sufficient and enough. But when we sin with the intention of doing it again and again and again, that's not genuine repentance. Repentance is completely turning our backs on our sins. It's not just asking our forgiveness with the intention of doing it again. We have to repent. We have to ask for forgiveness with a heart that says, I've messed up and I know that I have and I'm going to do everything in my power to not do it again. That's what repentance is. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, speaking about Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse is saying you can't just act like forgiveness is something that you are entitled to. The perfect 
perfect sacrifice had to die on that cross, had to become our sins in order for you to get that forgiveness. So yes, we're going to mess up. Yes, we're going to make mistakes. And maybe it is like this woman where it's going to be public and everyone is going to know about it. But when we go into repentance, when we go into asking for forgiveness, we have to remember that repentance is turning away from that sin and trying our best to be better again. I think another way that we try to justify our sins or our shortcomings is by comparing. We think, yeah, I messed up, but at least it wasn't as bad as what that chick did. Yeah, I had a secret boyfriend, but at least I'm not like my friend where I'm doing drugs. Yeah, I went to that party last night and I drank a lot, but at least I'm not like my sister where I'm failing every single class. I think we try to do this thing where we rationalize our bad behavior, where we act like our sin is okay because it's not as bad as the people around us. But this is a lie from the enemy. Another way of looking at sins in terms of an archery or in archery is sin is missing the mark. It's missing that target, and it doesn't matter if you miss that target by a couple of inches or miles. Either way, you are missing. And that's why it doesn't help to compare sins or to try to justify our actions in this way. When it comes to sin, we can't just act like our actions don't matter because Jesus is always there willing to forgive. We can't just act like they aren't as significant because they aren't as bad as others. We can't be okay with continuously missing the mark and further separating ourselves from God. We have to go to him in full repentance, asking for forgiveness with every intention of trying to be better. And this is where we are able to remove that separation that has been created by sin between us and God. It says in Isaiah 42.3, he will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. In this verse, we are the weak reeds. We are the flickering candles, the ones that are in the weak and the vulnerable position because of our sin. But this this verse promises us that he is not going to crush us, but instead he's going to bring justice. We serve a God that is both the lion and the lamb. He is big and he is mighty, but I also want you to imagine him as a lion with velvet paws. He's not going to hurt you. He's not going to hold it against you. He's going to be like this this woman in this situation where he says, hey, I'm enough. And what I've done for you will cover all of your sins. This is who Jesus is, and this is what he's like. And if Jesus did this for her, he's going to do it for us as well. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we just come before you, and we just humbly ask for your forgiveness, Lord. I just ask right now that you'll just forgive us for everything that we've done, everything in the past, every past mistake that maybe we've even forgotten to ask forgiveness for, that you will just come into our hearts and make us white as snow again. I just pray that you'll just convict us when we need it and that you'll allow us to feel your grace and your mercy at all points. And that whenever there is sin that is separating us from you, that you will just draw us right back into your arms. We love you so much, and it's in your precious name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the 4640 Student Center Podcast. For more information on what's happening in 4640, you can check us out on social media and at our website, 4640gj.com. Service times are Tuesday and Wednesday nights. Hope to see you there.